All right, if you would open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 115. We are taking a brief uh, break from Luke as we have a few folks who are down with COVID this week. So uh, we will be in Psalms and we will be back in Luke uh, starting up again next week. So once you have found Psalm 115 in your Bibles, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 115 reads as follows. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are but silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands that don't feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made both heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. The title of this sermon is The Living God, The Living God, and we are going to try in our time together tonight to cover all of Psalm 115, all 18 verses, and I promise we will be able to do that, I hope. (laughs) So Psalm 115 uh, is a glorious psalm. You might have been familiar with certain sections of it or read it in the past. Um, What Psalm 115 really does is it spells out for us a theology of comparing and contrasting God, the God as revealed in Scripture, as opposed to the gods that are fabricated by the world. In the very first pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created. In Scripture, the underlying assumption of its pages is that there is a creator God. There is a God who has created the world. All of creation proceeds forth from this God. And then the rest of Scripture explains to us who this God is, what he is like, his character, his nature, his divine attributes, his glory. And it it attempts to help us try to understand who this God is so that we may more perfectly worship him even in our fallen and imperfect state. Scripture explains to us things like, why are we separated from God? Why do we experience things like pain and suffering if there is a good God? 
What Scripture does is it tells us about a good, glorious God, and it tells us who we are in relation to this God. The opposing way to approach God is to conceive of one in our minds, to think of one that is unlike what Scripture provides, and instead to think what we want God to be like. We want to fashion a God after our own image, a God who behaves as we want him or her to behave, and a God who does what we want them to do. But Scripture does not know anything about such a God. So as we explore Psalm 115, I want you to know it's going to tell us about the one true and living God and how that God is different than all of the gods that we might have been exposed to by culture, maybe a God that we have learned about in a church setting before. And Scripture is going to speak plainly about who God is, what he is like, and how we ought to respond to that God. So if you look with me in the first verse of Psalm 115, Psalm 115, verse 1, you're going to see the living God and primarily his glory. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. This is the complete antithesis to what the world tells us about how we ought to live our lives. The world says you are born, you pursue a career, you pursue education, you pursue investments and wealth so that your name can get glory, so that your name can develop a reputation, so that at the sound of your name, people would think of respect and honor and establishment and work ethic. And at the sound of your name, people would have a kind of respect for you. But what scripture says is that the glory is not due to the names of men. It says, first and foremost, not to us, not to us, but to your name, O Lord, give glory. It is an opposite statement as opposed to what the world says. The God of the Bible is about his own glory. And that is a good thing for people because no human person can actually exist receiving the glory of creation because no human person was designed to receive the glory of creation. To do so would be the downfall of that person. And if you want any example of this, look to professional athletes and the cult of celebrity that we have in the United States and look at how depressed and lonely and isolated all of those people are. They have wealth, they have success, they have status, they have everything that this world could offer, and they are so empty because they were not designed to receive glory. There's only one being in all of the created universe who is the creator of the universe, and he is the one who is designed to receive glory. This psalm, in the first verse, establishes for us a truth claim. It tells us, that our names are not worthy of glory, but instead God's name is worthy of glory. It has not yet told us who this God is. It has not yet told us what he is like, but it has made a claim about the kind of worship and praise that he ought to receive. It says his name is worthy of glory. Now it's gonna go on later in these coming verses to establish why his name deserves glory, but the first assertion is that his name does in fact deserve and demand glory. Now, why might that be good news? Well, if you know scripture, it tells us the story of creation, fall, and redemption. It tells us that in the beginning, God created, 
and that he created man in his own image and that man sinned and created a schism between them and God. Man is no longer able to be in perfect relationship with God. And that's a big problem because God is holy and so he cannot exist in a sinful state with humanity because he is perfect and his perfection would destroy humans. And so what the rest of scripture tells us is how God, the perfect and holy God, is going to piece together the brokenness between him and mankind. And the answer is not that mankind somehow patches that schism back together and transcends back into God's domain, but rather that God comes down into man's domain and puts that back together. Not by means of anything that men has done, actually in spite of everything that man has tried, God once again creates a way for mankind to be united to himself. And he does all of those things not because mankind is particularly glorious, but because his name is particularly glorious. You'll see these truths in a few chapters of scripture. I'll ask you first to turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 is the first text we'll look at. And it establishes the reason why God's chosen people, Israel, ultimately are torn apart by the other nations. Ezekiel 36, and I will be reading starting in verse 18. God talks about how Israel has sinned. And he says in verse 18, So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Verse 19, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries, in accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And in that, people said of them, these, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. You see there the problem of sin. The problem of sin is not so much that people are uncomfortable with sin. The problem of sin is that a holy God cannot deal with a sinful people. And what it's telling us is something that we know to be true, which is that people who profess to be God's people are fully capable of profaning his name. They are fully capable of stepping out of the teachings of God. They are fully capable of disobeying the commandments of God. Here it's Israel, his chosen people, who've been delivered the table of Ten Commandments. They've been delivered the truth of God's word. They've been given the prophets, and yet they profane the holy name of God by disobeying all that he has commanded them. And he says he scatters them and he judges them because he has concern for his holy name. Now, that is the problem. And you'll see the solution is driven by the same concern. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. And we'll just be looking at two verses in Daniel chapter 9. Verse 18 and 19 of that chapter. Verse 18 says, O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but rather because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord. Forgive, 
O Lord. Pay attention and act. Delay not. Why? For your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. The name of God, which is worthy of glory and worthy of praise and honor, is the very reason why God has to punish his sinful people. And it's also the very reason why God is going to restore his sinful people. So it's good that his name is deserving of glory, as the psalmist says, because his name is not only the reason why we are problematic because of our sin, but it's also the reason why all of the rest of redemptive history takes place. It is because of his glory and the glory of his name that the rest of creation and the rest of redemptive history unfolds. It is those two realities, our sinfulness and God's glory, that drives the narrative of Scripture. And despite the unworthiness of the Israelites and the continuing sinfulness of them, God sees it fit to establish his name and his glory on the earth through redeeming those sinful people back to himself. And he does so not by some distant way of dismissing sin, but by himself intimately taking on the form of a man and becoming like those sinful people so that he could deal with their sinfulness. And so Psalm 115 verse 1 tells us immediately his glory is a first and foremost concern and a necessary concern for us to be aware of. It says then in the later parts of verse 1, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness were on display in all of those verses we just read. He was steadfastly faithful to the Israelites to both discipline them and then to restore them, to both chastise them for their disobedience and then also to come back and comfort them and to keep them and to sustain them despite their deserving exile. And that's good news because the church today is really no different than Israel. Given even greater news and a greater gospel and a greater understanding of how God operates in his heart for a lost and sinful world, the church still commits sin. The church still decides that God might be better off if he was more like what the world wants him to be like. And in doing so, the church commits a great number of sins. And at times, God abandons the church and leaves her to her faulty theology, but he never leaves her completely alone, always keeping for himself a remnant group that he will once again make his name great within. And it's for the sake of his steadfast love and for his faithfulness that the church exists 2,000 years after it was initially established by Jesus when he resurrected. And so Psalm 115 verse 1 tells us of his glory, which is good news because it's the very reason why we even gather here today. His glory has driven us to this point, and it's the reason we gather week after week after week is to bring his name, the due praise that it deserves. Secondly, if you look with me at verse 2 and verse 3, you're going to see his independence present because he is the living God and he has no need for mankind. Verse 2 says, Why do the nations say, Where is their God? What a question, and what a common question that is asked. If God exists today, as a naturalist might say, where is he? I can't see him. I don't see much evidence of him. If he wanted to know, and he wanted us to know about him, then why wouldn't he just show himself? Why wouldn't he just manifest himself and prove his existence once and for all, and make himself known to all of us. Where is the church's God? Where is he? What does verse 3 respond? It says, Our God is in the heavens. 
and he does all that he pleases. And that is good news because what it means is God does not obey the demands of man. If man says, where is their God and where is he and what is he like? God sits in the heavens, ruling and reigning as he always has and as he always will. And he does all that he pleases in the heavens. He does not take into consideration the demands of a rebellious, sinful people that has rejected the plain understanding of his revelation. God has created all of this world and all of the universe and all of the cosmos to reveal his glory and put his glory on display. And yet people look at all of this beauty and all of this creation and say, surely there must not be a God. And what a plain denial of the truth. And in asking the question, where is their God, they prove something about God, which is that he is so beyond our understanding that he is hard for us to see with natural eyes. He is so beyond this sinful people that he is difficult to comprehend. In fact, he's so far beyond the realm of mankind that he is in the heavens and he's up there doing all that he pleases. And it's going to contrast the God of the Bible then with the gods of mankind. And you'll notice something right off the bat, which is that the idols that are described here, they are completely able to be understood. And that's a critique of the God of the Bible. Well, where is he? We can't see him. Or what is he really like? Or doesn't that seem like a mystery if he is sovereign and yet there is evil? And that in contrast with that God, they have the idols, which are easy to understand. You can see all the dimensions of the idols. You can see all of the intricate details because idols were fashioned by mankind and so they can be completely understood by mankind. And look at the difference between a God who is uncreated and the false gods who are created. Verse four says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And being the work of human hands, notice they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes that have been crafted, but they can't see with those eyes. They have ears that have been shaped and formed, but those ears don't hear anything. They have noses, but those noses don't smell. They have hands, which might have been created in a very intricate idol, but those hands can't feel anything. They have feet, but an idol doesn't walk. And they don't make a sound because they have no ability to produce sound. And those who make these idols and who claim that these idols are God become like the idols that they fashion. To review, what they become like is blind, mute, senseless, lame, deaf, and completely dull of senses. That's what a person who fashions an idol is like. And the people who trust in idols or trust in things that they fashion and things that they can understand and say that this is God People who do those kinds of things prove themselves to be fools. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is where knowledge and wisdom start. So a person who denies God is already moved themselves away from wisdom and directly into the category of folly and foolishness. That's according to scripture. Because someone who denies God proves themselves to be someone who denies reality. By contrast, the God of the Bible is not made of silver and gold or the work of human hands. God is a spirit and he's uncreated. Matter of fact, he is the one who created all of the things that other people take and use to form into idols. He's the one who shaped the mountains in which the ore is found that you can mine silver and gold out of to fashion false idols. The God of the Bible is spirit. 
He has no body. The God of the Bible has no mouth because he's a spirit. But when he speaks, all of creation bends to his will. When he says, let there be light, photons become existent and allow light to creep forth into all of creation. When he says that the earth is to be suspended in this universe, spinning upon nothing, it does so because he said so. He speaks and everything bends into conformity with his language. Notice his son, when his son is manifest here in the world, his son standing over all of disobedient creation. Particularly, you can think of the storm and the raging sea when he's standing on that boat in Galilee. And the disciples say, Lord, we are going to surely die from this storm. And he says, peace and be still to the storm. And the storm must obey. Natural laws conform to the very voice and commandments and the speech of God. Whereas the false idols, they have mouths, but they cannot even speak. Or as it says later at the end of verse 7, they can't even make sounds out of their throat. They can't even make senseless grumblings. And God can make intelligent speech. In fact, he can create all of the known languages in the world. And he does so to scatter humanity and to punish them. And so these false idols have mouths and can't speak, while as God speaks and conforms reality into his image. They have eyes, these false gods. They have eyes, but they can't see. God has eyes that roam throughout all the world, and he sees everything that ever has happened and everything that will happen. He can see down the alleys of time and understand all of human history, both past, present, and future, as it has and as it continues to and as it will unfold. He has eyes that aren't even bound by time. He can see whatever he wants to see. These false idols have ears. They don't hear. The God of the Bible can hear everything. He's heard everything. He even hears the thoughts that exist in our mind. His ears are so keen that he has no difficulty telling us things that we've thought in secret. And how scary that might be for some of us in our sinfulness. These false idols, they have hands, but they can't feel anything. Whereas God has a strong right hand by which he upholds his people and he drives them forward to conquer and to reign. A strong right hand by which he commands his angel armies. They have hands, but they don't feel. And God sends his son touching and feeling the very brokenness of humanity and causing them to be healed. But the idols with their hands can do nothing of the sort. These false idols, they have feet, but they cannot walk anywhere. Whereas Christ Jesus, manifest in the flesh, bore on himself a human body, and he walked all over this world, declaring the truth and the graciousness of God everywhere he came. God doesn't even have feet, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere he wants to be. He can get anywhere. He can be anywhere at an instant. And how different that God is than the gods that people form and fashion after themselves. The God who is a living God is a God whose people become like him. Just like the false gods become, and the people who worship them become like the things that they worship, if you follow after the living God, you become conformed into the image of his son. You become like him. Just as it says in verse 8, those who make them become like them. Deaf, dumb, mute, lame, not able to understand things. Whereas the people who worship and follow the living God become wise and understanding. They have wisdom because they fear the Lord. 
They see clearly reality, and so they become more able to understand soberly how this world works. They become more holy because he has put his spirit within them to conform them into his image. Those who follow after the living God become themselves alive. Whereas all the ones who follow after the false gods are like the things that they follow, dead. And those who trust in the living God become living themselves. Romans 6 would say it this way. It says, don't you know that you're a slave of the thing that you obey? If you sin and you obey sin and you always conform and, conf- and uh, capitulate to sin when it tempts you, you're a slave to sin. All who sin and indulge in sin are slaves to that thing. Whether they think so or not, that's the reality, that is the truth. But the alternative is you could be a slave to righteousness. You could be a slave of Jesus Christ as Paul identifies himself. He says, I am a slave of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The living God present in Paul, conforming him to a more perfect and a greater kind of creation, a new creation. And so that's how Romans 6 would articulate this truth. That if you follow the living God, you become alive like that living God is. And we realize that we don't make this God. He makes us. We don't understand him and we can't see all of the details surrounding him because we didn't make him and he exceeds human understanding. He's not against human reason. He's beyond human reason. And so when things happen that we have a difficult time understanding, like how is there one God and three persons? How is God beyond time? How is there a God who is fully God and fully man? And how is that God not in conflict with all the other attributes of God that we understand? Know this, it's not against reason. It's beyond our ability to understand. And that's okay. If you could fully understand God, that would be an idol. Idols can be fully understood. God, the God of the Bible, cannot and will not be able to be fully understood. That's how it is. For all of eternity, we will be trying to understand and learn more of God, and we will continually be amazed by the truths of the things that he reveals about himself to us. The heavenly creatures in the throne room of God worship him continually for his attributes, and they've beat us for thousands of years to that goal. And we're going to be playing catch up for all the rest of eternity, trying to understand just how awesome and amazing this God really is. He is glorious, and he has a kind of independence that puts him apart from the false gods. But notice what else is true about God, and that is his reliability. Not only is he glorious, not only is he independent, but he is also a reliable God. Unlike the false gods, which fail regularly, our God is a reliable God. Read with me in verse 9, 10, and 11. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Notice how consistent God is for all his people. He is the help and the shield of his chosen people, Israel. He is the help and the shield of the ministers to Israel, the house of Aaron, the Levites. And he is the help and the shield of all who fear God. That includes, in the New Testament era, the Gentiles as well, the God-fearers, 
those who have reverence and awe towards God but aren't part of the Israelites. Those who fear God, though, have the same kind of benefits associated with them as the very chosen people of God. He is the help and the shield of all who would fear him. What that means is he's not the help and the shield of people who don't fear him. You can't cry to God for help if you don't fear God. But if you do fear God, you can take heart because he is the help and the shield for all who fear him. He's reliable. He's consistent day in and day out. If you think about someone who is reliable, that's often associated with someone who shows up to work consistently and performs good work every time they come in. So someone day after day after day always clocks in, never late, always performs good quality work day after day after day. That is a reliable kind of person. They never let you down. They're always dependable. And yet the most reliable employee will have a finite span of time in which they can serve their employer before they'll ultimately have to retire and before they'll ultimately be gone from this earth. But an infinite God, who is not bound by time, is ultimately reliable. Because while he's always reliable in our span of time, he's also reliable before we existed and after we will be gone. He is reliable for all generations for his people. And he has a track record to prove it. As a matter of fact, the book that you're holding proves his track record. If you read it, you see the continuing failure of the Israelites over and over again. And when you get to the New Testament, you see the failure of the apostles. And then you see the failure of Paul. And then you see the failure of the New Testament churches. And you get to Revelation and you see the failure of the churches that have been established. And yet you have a reliable God every step of the way walking with his broken people. Always commending to them a higher way of living, always calling them to a greater kind of morality, always telling them that he is their God and they are his people and he will put his spirit within them and he will walk in step with them despite all of their messiness. He is a reliable God. And he is not only reliable for 80 years, he's not only reliable until he retires, he's always reliable. He has no need of sleep or rest. He has no need of taking a break. He is reliable 24-7, 365, from age to age, from eternity past into eternity future, always reliable. And he is reliable for all of his people. And we need to be reminded of that because we are quickly forgetting of just how consistent God is. Consider even in the last week or two how you might have been faced with a challenge or a problem, and the very first thought is to worry about that problem to fixate on ways in which you yourself might be able to solve that, or maybe to come to the end of yourself and say, well, I don't really know what I'm going to do about that. And yet, God, who has consistently proved himself to be reliable, might just be looking and listening and waiting for you to look to him and say, Lord, I'm at the end of myself. I don't know what to do. I give this up to you. And he is reliable to answer and to understand all of our hurts and needs. And his reliability sometimes puts us to shame because of how few times we actually take our problems to him. And yet he's so reliable that even when we are aware of our sinfulness, he is also there to take on our sinfulness and to deal with it appropriately. He is a reliable God. Notice also his generosity present in the text. Not only is he reliable, but he graciously gives his good gifts to his people. Verse 12 and 13, the Lord has remembered us, and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. 
He will bless, notice again, those who fear the Lord, that's you and me, both the small and the great. Isn't that good news, both the small and the great? The kingdom of the world only blesses those who are already great. The kingdom of the world only blesses those who they deem worthy of blessing. And God says, both the small and the great in my kingdom get blessing. Those who fear the Lord, the house of Aaron, the Israelites, anyone who's part of God's kingdom and his dominion, he gives to them generously. It is a good thing to have a God who gives generously. And can't you testify to the good, gracious blessings of God in your life? If you look back over your short span of time on this earth, maybe 20, 30 years, you can look and you can see the blessings of God on display. Consider, for example, things like health, things like financial security, things like friendships and relationships, the fact that you have had already a certain span of life on this earth, that you have a certain level of living and a level of wealth and a level of comfort, unbeknownst to the rest of mankind throughout human history. Consider the blessings of God. Consider the future blessings he might one day give you, such as children and relationships and careers. Maybe he's already blessed you with some of those things. And can you not testify to his blessing in almost every single aspect of your life? What if you think about particular pain associated with your life? And you can ask the question, well, does his generosity extend even there? Does his blessing extend even there? I would say yes, but don't take my word for it. Let's look at scripture. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, and I will just read one verse from Job chapter 1, but as you're turning there, I want you to see this. Job has everything he could have ever wanted and more. An extremely wealthy man, well-established, well-respected. He had a wife, a big family, lots of land, lots of wealth. And in Job chapter 1, God takes almost everything that Job has away. He takes his children. He takes his animals. He takes all of his property. He seizes all of Job's assets. And Job is crushed by this. Verse 20 of Job chapter 1. This is Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And what does he say in his time of worship? Verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all Job did, he does not sin or charge God with wrong. God is worthy of blessing, and his generosity is on display, even in the things he removes from our lives. Because consider this, if you feel the pain of something leaving your life, you had the blessing of that thing for a certain period of time before God took it away. And even that pain of removal points to the fact that for some season of time, you had a blessing from God. Undeserving, because you came into the world with sin, you came into the world naked and with nothing, and God in his generosity gave you things, 
even if you didn't know they were from him. And when he takes them away, if he chooses to do so, you can even bless him for the time that you had those things and for the pain and the lessons that he's teaching you in the suffering. The point is, his generosity is on display in both the giving and the taking away. As Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Evil is not a problem for God's goodness because evil is just a picture of the shortcomings of how much we miss God. You can see on display the brokenness of creation all over the world. And what you notice by contrast is the goodness of God. And you can bless God for his goodness on display, even in those broken situations. What the psalmist then concludes as he says, the Lord is good and he will bless his people. He says, verse 14, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made both the heaven and the earth. God has the heaven and the earth. He has them at his disposal. And he can bless his people generously with all that he desires to provide. And then what does he choose to give to mankind? Notice now the dominion of this living God on display in verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth, he has given that to the children of man. Now, what is that verse telling us about? It just finished telling us about the blessings of God. It's told us God is worthy of glory. He's worthy of praise. He doesn't need us. He's unlike these idols. And then he says, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, the place where he makes whatever decisions he wants to make. And then it says, the earth, though, he has given to the children of man. Does that mean that God owns the heavenly realm and mankind owns the worldly realm and that God has to somehow borrow that from us when we're done? What it instead, though, means is that all of it is his dominion. As it said in verse 15, God made the heaven and the earth. And because he made the heaven and the earth, he can give those gifts out to whoever he wants to. And he has chosen for a time, for a season, to give the earth to the children of man. What that means is the earth is really not ours. It means the earth is still under his dominion. We are just temporary stewards. We are merely house-sitting for God. It's his universe. It's his world. These are his resources and his creation. And the earth that he has given to us, he has given to us to see how we ought to steward it and how we will steward it. And we will be judged for how we steward everything that he gives us on this world and in this life. So what are some examples of those things that he gives to us to steward? Well, within the earth, you can think about wealth and career and jobs and financial security that you might have been given by God to test your stewardship. Not a single paycheck that you've ever earned in your entire life has been given to you apart from the blessing of God. And you might not think that because you've earned those paychecks, but consider that God gave you health and a brain and a body to earn all of the things that you've ever earned. And he's given you opportunities and time to connect with people. He's given you the blessing of raising you in a family where you could be potentially educated and put in a position where you could earn an income. And so every paycheck you've ever earned is actually really the Lord's money. And then the question is, how do you steward your finances knowing that one day you will be held accountable to how you stewarded them? When you get to the New Testament, Jesus will say things like, when you are coming to Judgment Day, 
you'll be responsible for having clothed the naked and fed the hungry and taken care of people who could not take care of themselves. Because in doing so, you will have taken care of me. You will have taken care of my people, my image bearers. And people will look at him and say, well, when did we have an opportunity to do that? Or why should we have done that? Or was that really our responsibility? And God has told us that because he has given us gifts like wealth and financial security, we ought to turn those gifts back around and not store them up for ourselves and not be hoarders of those things, but instead generously give them to those who need them. Because in doing so, we demonstrate a kind of stewardship. God has not given you a job or financial stability so that you could invest that back into yourself. He's already invested those things into you. Now it's your turn to invest those into other image bearers of God. He's not given you the job that you have or the specific situation in life that you're in right now for your own glory and for your own advancement. Remember, verse 1, not to us, but to your name be the glory. So how does that apply to jobs and career and education? Well, every position that you're in, whether that be small or great, part-time or full-time, you have the responsibility of being a testimony to the kind of work ethic that God's people ought to deliver, meaning you deliver good work to your employer and you deliver good and dutiful and consistent work to all of your coworkers. And you do so, and in doing so, you bear testimony to God's goodness and his reliability. And if people might ask you, despite all of the difficult times and frustrating events that happen, why you are the way you are, you take that opportunity to remind them exactly why it is the case that you take your work so seriously and so diligently. It is because God has put you in this position and you are merely a steward of this career while it is yours. It is not a career for you to advance your own name and your own glory. It is a career given to you by God as a gift to advance his name and his glory. And so be consistent and diligent in your work. If you're a student, be consistent and diligent in your studies because in studying you prepare for a lifetime of fruitful ministry in whatever career field you might be in. That does not mean you need to work for a church to advance God's glory. You can do so flipping burgers at McDonald's. And God is perfectly capable of using such situations and such circumstances to bring his name glory. He used fishermen to start a church. He does not need education and skill. He just needs willingness. And that is all that he needs to work with and all he really does work with all throughout scripture. Maybe God gave you a spouse. Maybe God gave you relationships. Maybe God one day will bless you with children. Consider all of those things and ask the question, how ought I to invest those for the glory of God? Some of us are very selfish with our relationships. We ask questions like, how can that person make me feel better? Or what kind of people do I want to spend my time with? And typically we pick people who we would really want to be friends with anyway. And we'd really like to be around even if they weren't Christians. And we invest our relationship and our energy there in advancing our own comfort and our own glory. And God says, leverage all of your relationships for his glory. So choose people you might not otherwise choose. And invest time with people who you might not think are really worth that time. And people who might be frustrating. And people who might not have anything to give back to you. Because in doing so, you invest your relationship not for your glory, but for his glory. 
And consider, lastly, the thing that we've all been given, indiscriminate of our upbringing and our financial situation. The earth consists of one thing, one constant, as old as far as we can tell as the earth itself, which is time and the passing of it. And God has given us our time on this earth, the same amount of time to every single person, to invest for his glory. Because his dominion extends to the realm of time. And he's given us time, not because we deserve time, but because he has chosen to give us time. And as John says in his gospel, we must work the works of God while it is still day. Night is coming. And the darkness will overtake the light. And so we must consider the days and we must consider the season and we must consider this present moment and the future moments and invest our time to the glory of God, to disciple others, possibly to volunteer. Maybe we invest our time more diligently to not invest in our own entertainment, but rather to invest in some way to bring the kingdom of God more presently and tangibly felt into this world. And we conform this present world into the image of God's design in his kingdom. Because as image bearers, that's our task, to bring forth God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And if we believe that with our time, we would invest, I think, more carefully in how we spend our time. And right now, you know, resolutions are popular and the use of time is a popular topic. Things like exercise and diet and career and side hustles and wealth and all kinds of things that you could potentially run after. And I think the most important thing we consider is how we use our time. Because it's the one resource that all of us have been given equally. No person is given more or less hours in a day. No person is given more minutes or less minutes in a week. No person is given more days in a year than any other person. Rich or poor, everyone gets time. Consistent, plodding along, tracking the same. And whether we spend it or we don't, it will be used up. Whether you invest it well or poorly, it goes away. And so time is something we ought to steward very well for the glory of God. Because time also exists in his dominion and for his glory. And then lastly, as we learn and conclude about the living God and what the psalmist has to tell us about this God, we first talked about his glory. We've talked about his independence, how he has no need of man. We talked about how reliable he is, how generous he is, where all of his dominion extends to. And then lastly, the God of the Bible, the living God, is different than false gods and different than idols in this way. He has a particular people, and his people are marked and different than the people of the false gods because they are a living people who exist to bless his name. Verse 17 and 18 says it this way. It says, the dead, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we, we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. The single mark of difference between God's people, his chosen people, and all other people on this earth is this. God's people praise his name, and the dead people don't. The living God has a living people, vibrant and active, who seek to bring his name more and more glory and more and more honor in their lives and how they live, in their words and how they speak, in their thoughts and how they think, and in their relationships and how they steward them. All of those things we've previously discussed. 
The contrast is verse 17, the dead. It says the dead do not praise the Lord. You might even say that the dead cannot praise the Lord. They're unable to. In Ezekiel 37, you get this chapter that talks about this valley of dead bones, very famous chapter in Ezekiel. And the whole point of this chapter is to illustrate how futile it is to command the worship of God from a bunch of dry, dead bones. What needs to happen for the bones to be able to worship God and become vibrant is God needs to pour his spirit onto the bones, put flesh on them, put sinews on them, and then breathe his life into them so that they can be his people and he can be their God and they can praise and worship his name. The thing that separates the dead people who can't praise the Lord and the living people who do praise the Lord is the spirit of God present and God's choice to put his spirit within them. And so if you are part of the people who are living and active, put to life by God and his choice, by his gracious gift, you are responsible for praising his name. We who are not dead, who are alive, are responsible for worshiping God. It is a command in scripture to worship God in season and out of season, whether we do or don't want to. It doesn't matter. His name is worthy of praise. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it, it says, what is the chief end of man? And the conclusion is very simple. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The living people, God's people, his church, ought to bring him praise. And we can do that whether we have good or bad doctrine. Actually, at the end of the day, our heart posture towards worshiping God is primarily more important than our understanding of doctrine. Our desire to bring his name praise is more preeminent than our understanding of systematic theology. All of those truths are good so far as they uphold and advance the praise of God's name, but they do not subservient or supplant his worship. His worship is preeminent. If God was more gloriously worshipped by people who knew doctrine better, the demons and Satan would have us all beat. All of the academic institutions that have critical scholarship that seek to deny the authority of Scripture, they are better scholars of Greek and Hebrew than you might ever be. And they understand doctrine and manuscript tradition way better than you might ever do. But they do not praise the Lord. And they do not bless His name. And so what good is a doctrine like that? And what good is knowledge if it does not advance the glory of God? But God's people are different. They are not dead. They are alive. And they bless the name of the Lord from this time forth and, as it says, forevermore. The future that we have coming, the future that is determined and set before us and inevitable, is one that we can start today by the worship of God. It's something we can start from this time forth and forevermore. It's not something that's only to be done in the future, sometime way off into the future, after we've had our career and had our fun and had our lives, then we can go and worship God. Right now, from this time forth, the people of God worship his name. And we do so in season and out of season, when we do and don't want to, in our homes, in our private life, with our friends, in our careers, with our tongues in church as we gather corporately. We do it all the time. His name is to be praised at all times. As I said earlier, if you look at the pictures of the scene of the throne room in heaven, you might see the living creatures always praising God. They've been at it for thousands of years. And they're going to be at it for the rest of eternity. Isaiah testifies to this. Ezekiel testifies to this. John testifies to this in Revelation. 
He says there's these living creatures, they cover their face, and they just cry, holy, holy, holy. And there's elders around the throne, and they throw their crowns down, and they say, holy is God. And the martyrs, all the people who've been killed, say, this God is worthy of worship. Holy is God. What a just God we serve. And the only people who struggle with that are the people who have not yet seen that reality perfectly. But we've been told about it. We've been told ahead of time about it. And so we ought to, in right response, begin our praise and worship now, in this life, and as we still draw breath in this world. Because we're already going to be doing it for all of eternity, so we might as well get a head start. We don't want to delay until some time in the future, as if it's somehow something bad that we want to push off. The most satisfied you will ever be in your life is not when your name is drawing glory, but is when you are praising God's name and the glory that he naturally draws to himself. And this is something we have to preach to ourselves all the time. Because the whole objective of this present world and this present uh, modern age is to tell us that our names are worthy of glory. Our existence is worthy of praise. We are worthy of honor and respect and we are good. And we ought to be the center focal point of our own universe and everyone the same. But the Bible says something totally different. It says God is the center of the universe. He is the thing around which all other creation conforms because he is the creator of that creation. And that all of creation is actually best off when it doesn't worship itself, but when it worships God. And that's the kind of God that scripture describes. That's the kind of God we draw together to worship. And any God who is unlike that is a false God, is an idol. And it can be an idol whether you call it Christ or whether you call it God or not. The question of idolatry is not what name you give it. The question of idolatry is, is it the God that the Bible describes? Because as the Israelites did, they called their God Yahweh and worshiped a bull image, a God that they could understand. And the church today says, this is God and conforms him to whatever sensible moralities we like to have today. We like to say this is God and he is a more tolerant God than the one described in the Old Testament. This is God and he has a different kind of morality than what Paul thought he had. This is God and he is a little bit more tame than the one you read on the pages of scripture. But those are all false gods. The one true living God does not need updating. He doesn't need censoring. He doesn't need any kind of amendments or reinterpretations of how he is. He just is how he is, and he demands worship as he is. And we, his people, ought to provide that worship freely and continually while we have breath to draw. And that is the good news of why we have continued to draw breath, because we draw breath continually even now on this earth, not for our own glory, but for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we... Thank you so much for your imminent presence in this earth. How you sustain the world by the word of your power. How you drive us to the end of ourselves by your magnificence. How your glory is on display all over the place. And Lord, we pray for forgiveness for our lack of of ability to worship you as we ought. 
Lord, we pray for forgiveness for all of the moments of time we've ever invested in sinful ventures as opposed to praising your name. And Lord, we just ask for more time to draw breath. Not for us, O Lord, not for us, but for your name so we can give it the glory that it deserves. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and precious name as is praised by the cherubim and seraphim and as we hope to praise as well. Amen. All right.